and uh, we're gonna do our best this summer to be in person as much as we can, whatever. Um, and but everything will have a Zoom component, right? So um, if you're like interested in coming to the Bible study, those who are online, if you're interested in coming to one of the growth group, you're not really ready to meet in person. There'll be a Zoom. Uh, you can get on the Zoom uh, video for the growth group. So it'll be a room full of a few people and then maybe some people online as well. So that's kind of how it's going to operate this summer and into the future for a little bit. Uh, so trying the best we can to have as many in-person uh, fellowship and, and Bible studies as we as we can. So uh, you may want to grab one of the, those when you leave. Um, so we are starting a, a new series. Um, we are, uh, I didn't know when I... Uh, when we started this church, how quickly we would get into the book of Revelation. Uh, but I think that the, the pandemic has kind of just kind of pushed us here uh, to this book and thought it would be a good time to do this book. Um, and really looking forward to, um, yeah, preaching through Revelation. So we're in Revelation chapter 1. Um, and I'm going to read this chapter, and then I'm going to pray for us, and um, we're going to jump into this. Revelation chapter 1. If you don't know where Revelation is, it's the last book of the Bible. So, uh, just, uh, if you're in Genesis, you're really far off. You need to keep going. Um, Just kind of keep pushing. Um, Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Tyatara, and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like a burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, and and though dead, but he he, he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. Write therefore the kings, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. After the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word, to be in your word this morning, Lord, to read from it, to sing your word, to praise your name, to take up an offering, Lord. But now we come to the point of our service where we teach from your word. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, challenge us today through your word. You would help us to know and understand uh, things about you, Lord, that we're lacking, things that we're doubting, Lord, that we would come out of this 
service, out of this teaching, trusting you more, trusting in your word more, making it the root and center of our lives. Lord, we pray for those who are still away from us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would be with them and be with their families. For those who are sick, for those who are going through work-related transition, Lord, we pray for them as well. Lord, we pray for all, Lord, who are apart from us right now because of uh, being at home, being away, uh, sickness, whatever it is. Lord, we pray for them as well. Lord, we pray that you would, there would be a time in the near future, Lord, where we would feel united together as one church. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so I want to talk about uh, a, a, a moment in history, um, and usually when I get to this point when I'm going to read something, like a little bit of a text, there's a little bit of fear, because sometimes I may read more than I should, so bear with me here. But I want to read a little bit about uh, King George VI. If you don't know who King George VI is, if you've seen the movie King's Speech, that is the story of King George VI. Um, and what's important about him is, obviously, if you, you find out in the movie that he had a stutter, right, and he became King of England. And he became king during the beginning of World War II. And in 1939, September 1939, he had to give a speech. He had to give a radio address to the nation of England. And in that radio address, he basically makes the point that they're going to war again. Remember, this isn't that long after World War I when many British soldiers died during World War I. This is 20 years later. They're back to going to this massive war that Germany has started, this massive war the entire continent of, of Europe is about to, to be brought into this massive battle. So he has to give this major address, and he has a stutter. And so he has to practice with a, with, a, uh, with, a, with a speech coach to be able to speak and speak with authority. And so he, he gives this message. I'm only going to read a little bit of this. He says in the beginning, In the grave hour, perhaps the most fate, uh, fateful in our history, I send to every household of my people, both at home and overseas, this message. Spoken with the same depth of feeling for each one of you as I were able to cross your threshold and speak to you myself. For the second time in lives of most of us, we are at war. He says later on that it would be fateful to, uh, fatal to our civilized order in the world. This war, this, this enemy that they have to go meet and, and fight. And at the end of this, of this speech, he says, it is to this high purpose that I now call my people at home and the peoples across the seas who will make our cause their own. I ask them to stand calm, firm, united in the time of trial. This, I mean, the king of England at this time, of course, we're Americans. We don't have a king. And so some of us, when uh, the president speaks, we kind of like roll our eyes, right, depending on what party he's from. Um, and, uh, uh, and so we, we, we in America, don't kind of, we kind of lack this understanding of the authoritative figure who has an important message for the people. In England, especially during the 30s, they understood this. When the king spoke, he spoke with authority, right? He spoke in, to the people to bring them a sense of calmness, to tell them about important information or an important purpose that they needed to know. He had a captive audience. The nation of Britain trusted the words of their king as he spoke. We've kind of lost that, that significance, that authoritative voice in our in our society, when an important message needs to be spoken, it's a problem in our society for a particular figure to be able to have that authority and to be able to speak certain information or a certain message that needs to be heard by the people. What actually is important and to whom should listen to the message? Well, there's a, a, a term that's being spread around called infodemic, infodemic. Infodemic is an excess of information about a problem. Like when there's so much information about a problem, it's hard to know what's right and what's true. There's not one single authoritative voice, and so therefore there's an infodemic. There's just news and information and facts and figures all over the place. Who do you believe? Who do you trust? The Allman Brothers had a song, Who, who to Believe. He said that they say, or am I a fool? Am I a fool? Because this confusion, oh, it's killing me. They all say that you're doing me wrong, but our love is much too strong. Someday tell me, somebody tell me who to believe. I don't know if y'all feel that way sometimes, especially in the last few months. Who do you believe? Who do you believe? Who do you listen to? What message is actually true? 
Who is actually speaking with authority and speaking truth? Who is speaking and is it important? This is a major theme in the book of Revelation. Authority and significance. Who is, who is speaking and what is he speaking about? Just to kind of give a little bit of a footnote to this. Um, I want to present this because this is the first sermon in this series in Revelation. So it's a good time to do this kind of content footnote to kind of present a little a message before we get into this. That uh, the purpose of this series is not to argue for a particular end time theory. If you have a particular end times theory, you may be disappointed in this theory. Because that's not the point of the book. It's not, it's not the point of the book. We need to kind of sit under this book. We need to sit under this teaching and allow it to speak to us and not try to pick and, and pick and prod what verses or points fit our theory. I want to say that on the front end. I will not be utilizing any flowcharts, maps, diagrams of any kind during this entire series. I'm not using a laser pointer at any time to point at anything, to circle and say, pay attention to this picture. I'm not going to do that. This book is an encouragement to the church in the first century, today and tomorrow. This is a pastoral letter by Jesus Christ. This is a letter of pastoring, and he's pastoring the church. We're all being pastored by Jesus Christ through the book. A particular timeline of the future is not being communicated here. Rather, it is a vision of God's redemptive purpose to his church. We will draw attention to the similarities of revelation with Old Testament prophecy like Daniel, which showed Israel God's redemptive purpose in the present and in the future. That God is Lord over everything that is happening and will happen in the future. I wanted to state that on the front end as we get into this theory. J.K. Bill has a great uh, kind of overview statement about revelation. He said, Revelation is an encouragement to believers of all ages. That God is working out his purpose even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, and apparent satanic uh, domination. So let me present on the front end here some contextual, some historical context before we get into Revelation. This, uh, the, when we think about John, who is the writer, the Apostle John is the writer of Revelation. He's on the island of Patmos. He's been, he's been basically uh, uh, exiled to this island by the Roman Empire. But we want to think about this as like persecution that the church is going through in a global uh, uh, setting. This is really talking about localized persecution. And we'll see this next week when we get into the seven letters of the churches, that there's localized persecution going on. There's a misconception during the early church that the Roman Empire, as a, the entire empire, would persecute Christians as a political like order. Usually what was happening is, is that these localized uh, providence, provinces or regions or cities and their governors would then be the ones that pursued persecution of the, of the Christians. And the reason why they would do this is that especially in Ephesus is where John was before he was sent off to Patmos he was, what was going on in Ephesus with cult worship or worshiping Caesar. And so when the Christians weren't worshiping Caesar the governors would take it upon themselves to persecute them for favor with Rome. To earn favor with Rome. And so what was going on in Ephesus at this time when John's writing this, kind of maybe AD 90, maybe AD 100, uh, there's localized persecution going on. And, and so G John is writing in that context of this localized uh, persecution, basically making the point that we are hated by the world and we will experience persecution. The church today will experience persecution and the church tomorrow will experience persecution. And the threat of compromise in the face of persecution will always be an issue for the church. It will always be an issue in the first century to the 21st century. The threat of compromising the doctrine, compromising Christ because of persecution. So that's some of the historical context. And another thing we need to talk about before we get into the, into the first chapter is a little bit of interpreting Revelation. There's different ways that people will interpret Revelation. And the way that we're going to kind of pursue this is we're going to kind of almost do a holistic interpretation of this passage using some of the different forms of interpretation of Revelation. I'm not going to go into a lot of those because there's a lot of big words, and honestly, they're not that important. 
But I want you to just kind of focus your mind on what, how we're going to kind of look at this book. And I think it's the most faithful way to look at this book. That we are, and I think John is doing this. He's exhorting all believers to remain faithful in the face of suffering. To remain faithful to Christ in the face of suffering. Some of what is mentioned in Revelation is future events. Okay? So not everything that's mentioned in Revelation is a present focus. Some things are forward focused, right? They're focusing on the end times. Like, we're talking about the resurrection, the, that when Christ returns, we're talking about the consummation of the kingdom, the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. Obviously, that's not talking about the present tense. It's talking about future events. However, the main arts is the symbolic presentation of the battle between good and evil, what makes Revelation such an, an interesting, interesting book is every generation of the church has found encouragement by it as they face persecution. Every church throughout the ages can come to Revelation and be encouraged by it. Not just the church of the first century or the church when there's a tribulation and Jesus returns, right? The church of all generations, of all ages, can come to this book during their persecution and be encouraged by it. And for us, obviously, we're not going through physical persecution, right? Not like our governor, uh, our mayor, is, is dragging us to the fourth center and, and feeding us the lions, right? That's not going on in Evansville. But what we're experiencing, though, and why this book is important to us, is that there's a real presence of the fallen nature of the world, right? That we are in a fallen world, that the sky is literally falling, right? This idea that uh, the sky just seems like it's falling on us because of what's going on with the, with the pandemic and the coronavirus. So we kind of feel this fallen nature of the world. So Revelation means a lot to us. It will speak to us as we get into this. So um, the, the title of this sermon, you, know, you probably thought I'd never get to it. The title of the sermon is, is Revelation Needs Rescuing from Left Behind. Rescuing a Revelation from Left Behind. You know, and I know that sounds provocative a little bit, but I think what happens is, is that when we get to Revelation, we start to kind of look to it to kind of, aha, it's pointing to all these different events that are happening today and how it fulfills events today. And what you're looking for, and, so, and you miss what the book is really about. That this is a letter, this is a testimony of Christ to his church to persevere until the end. And that speaks to all generations, to all ages of the church. Uh, kind of the, the, the main idea is that the revelation of Jesus Christ, revealed by God, testified by Christ, and shown to John, is vital for all to be affected by this word, so that they may be blessed by the everlasting, glorious grace in Christ, which is given to his churches with hope to the end. Kind of a, maybe a shorter way to say that, it's a bigger idea. Pay attention to the words of this book revealed by the risen Christ. Pay attention to the words. Pay attention to every word that is given in this book. So point number one is blessed is the one who is affected by the te this testimony of Christ, which John saw and wrote. Blessed is the one who is affected by this testimony of Christ, which John saw and wrote. So this, this letter, this pastoral letter given by Christ to the church... Now, he's given it to the seven churches that are mentioned in Asia, but it really, those seven churches represent the entire church in that time and our church and churches into the future. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ given to his churches. What is a revelation? This helps us understand the nature of this book, the nature of this book. What is a revelation? A revelation is, is a revealed mystery. Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is the is the Greek word for revelation, right? And and so when we think of apocalyptic literature, we're talking about prophecy. We're talking about this, which is very similar to Old Testament prophecy. Revelation is very similar to the Book of Daniel. Very similar to a lot of the other uh, uh, Old Testament prophecy literature in the Old Testament. This is the genre of this literature. So to read this as an historical book, right, to read this as if this is like 1 Kings or the book of Acts would be a wrong way to read this, right? Because it's not 
the history of the church. It's not Acts. It is a prophecy. It's a revelation. So that's an important thing we have to think through as we read through this, the nature of this letter. And it's interesting that God shows it, right? God shows this. He gave uh, Christ to show to his servants, this, his servants is his church, his people, the things that must take place. And so this is a significant book. I mean, the first verse shows us and tells us that this book is important. Why? Because it is given by God, right? This is an idea where the book of Luke, where it, it is inspired by God, right? But he's writing, he's doing, uh, he's doing, uh, he's doing interviews, and he's recording the, the life of Jesus and the life of Paul and the, and, the, and, the, and the early church. We have a direct dictation from God given through Christ and then given to John to write. And this is the person saying this and speaking this is God himself. Given through God. I mean, God has given this. He's shown this to his servants. We should pay attention, right? This is a significant book. God is speaking to us. It's given by God through Jesus Christ. This is the words of God. It's the testimony of Jesus Christ. Christ is bearing witness to this to John. And he talks about what must happen quickly. What will happen uh, in the latter days. And I think this is important here because, again, if we take that passage and go, okay, this is meaning only the end of days, right? This is talking about when Jesus returns. This is talking about the rapture. It's talking about the, the consummation of the kingdom. You're missing it because what it's going on is we're in the last days. John is saying what's happening, what's going to happen, we've already entered into that age. We've already entered into the age of the end times. We have entered into this present reality that Christ is now king, he is now lord, he is now ruling, and now his kingdom is coming and being consummated. We are in the end times. When Jesus rose from the dead, the end times began. So he's making it known what's going to happen, what's going to happen in the present and into the future, what God's going to do, what's going to occur now and what is going to happen in the future. So there's a sense of foretelling that there's a present uh, context to this book. And it's interesting, as we read through Revelation chapter 1, the tense of what's going on, right? Jesus is the ruler, right? He's not going to be the ruler. It's that future state. It is already. Jesus is already ruler of the kings. He is already, the kingdom of saints is already present. Christ is already in his full glory. This is something that are already true. It's true then and it's true now. Christ is king. He is ruler. His kingdom is here. We are part of his kingdom. That's not something we look forward to. It's something that's already true. That's important as we get into that. It's important for John as he wrote this to the early church. It's important to us as well. But, with that being said, there is future events that don't happen in the first century, that have not happened yet, but will happen soon. And it's an important thing. There's a present context and a future context to this book. So there's foretelling the present, and there's foretelling the future, the resurrection of the dead, the new heaven and the new earth, and God's completed kingdom. And it's important that in the words that are being presented here in this first few first verses 1 through 3, that this is not some timeline that's being communicated. It's, this is being communicated in symbols. Uh, God is signifying. He's making known through symbols. He's communicating by symbols. Okay? So again, like I said before, this book is more like an Old Testament prophecy than it is like Acts or like the Gospels. Why? Because he's making it known through symbols. He's signifying what is going to happen. And John is the one who is the one who is the agent of this. Let me give you an example of maybe that will help you here as we get into this. Turn to Daniel chapter 2 if you have a Bible. Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to show you the similarities that help us a little bit on how this book should be read as we enter into it. Daniel chapter 2. Starting in verse 28. This is, this is the, if you don't remember the context here, Daniel is interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He has a dream of a statue, right? Now that, what that means is, is that it doesn't mean that there's an actual statue 
that represents it. It's a vision. It's a symbol. But it does speak to true events. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Reveals mysteries, and he has made known, made known, to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dreams and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what will be after this. And he who reveals, reveals mysteries made known, made known to you what is to be. Go to verse 45. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that is broken into pieces, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known, made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is true. Do you guys see the similarities in this passage of Daniel and the passage in Revelation chapter 1? So it signifies, it shows us that we should read this very similarly to how Daniel reads that vision. God is speaking to us through symbols. That is the nature of this book. And he speaks these symbols to his servant John, the Apostle John, in verse 2, who testified the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, which he saw. He saw these symbols, and he wrote them down. And we get in verse 3, verse, verse three blessed is the reader and the hearer and the keeper of this testament. This is point number 3. Blessed is the reader and the hearer and the keeper of this testament. We understand this is a very significant book, that God is the one giving this book. We understand how we should read it, what its nature is. But it's what's so fascinating is not only the significance of this book, but also the consequence or the, res or the re result if you read it, if you hear it, and if you keep it. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Fortune is on you. Favor is on you by God if you read, hear, and keep this testimony. The words of this prophecy, of what is written here. The season is near. The urgency by which we are kind of pointed to, that this, this urgency to read it, the urgency to hear it, the urgency to keep it, the urgency to let it, to write it down, to the urgency to be, let it be known, the words of this book. Why is it urgent? You know, rarely have I heard a lot of sermons on the book of Revelation. Rarely do we understand the... We kind of think, well, Revelation is kind of odd. It's weird. It's got these weird symbols in it. Some people love it too much. Some people don't understand it. So we just kind of leave it over at the end of the, of the Bible, right? And let leave it alone. But the beginning of this, this letter, the beginning of this book, basically draws us in and says, God is speaking, and he has something important to say, and it's urgent, that you read, hear, and keep it. It's urgent. Why is it urgent? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. His kingdom is near. A new Lord has taken his place. He's been given the name above all names, right? Philippians chapter 2. This is not just poetic language, right? This is reality. Christ Jesus is in body. He is risen from the dead. He is reigning as king. He is ruler. That's just not poetic language. That is reality. That is truth. And so, therefore, there's a realness to God's kingdom. And there's a real reality, a physical reality to God's kingdom, and we should pay attention to the future of his kingdom, how God is going to consummate and complete his kingdom. A war has broken out for worldwide domination. When Christ rose from the dead, Christ had basically said, I'm come, and I'm come to rule, right? He has conquered death. He's conquered sin, and now he's about to conquer evil and Satan and darkness. War has broken out, and darkness is fighting back, right? Persecution that's happening in the first century is what? It's the darkness, it's, it's, sin, it's Satan, it's fighting back. It's evil fighting back. And so we get this understanding of this cosmic battle that is happening around us. And Christ is going to consummate his kingdom. The light is pushing back against the darkness, but the darkness fights to continue its reign. And so the testimony of that and how God is going to conquer Satan, how he's going to conquer uh, darkness and evil, is important to the church. So what is at stake? What's at stake is that salvation and judgment. And so we need a call to proclaim and preach this to the world, to call people to repentance and faith in Christ, to put trust 
that the, God, the real king of the world, the real Lord, is ruling. He is risen from the dead. He is ruling right now, and you need to pay homage to him and worship him. Uh, the fourth point is this, the need of grace and peace to the church. The need of grace and peace to the church. We saw this in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 1. Grace and peace from God, who is, who was, and who is coming. Speaking of God's sovereignty, right? We, we, he kind of, John states here the, the, where our grace and peace comes from. It comes from the sovereign God, who is. He is, right? He is who he is, who was and it is to come. He speaks from the seven spirits, the power of the spirit. The seven is a number that means, means completion. The Holy Spirit. We have our grace and peace from the Holy Spirit. The power of God who are before the throne. The confidence in the Spirit's work to apply God's grace, right? That God's grace is applied to His church through His Spirit. And it will be given. It will be accomplished. It's affected by His word. That during whatever troubled time the church may face, she will always be full of God's grace bestowed by the Spirit. Right? We don't ever have to worry that God's grace will not be given. When he says grace to you, that grace is given by the Spirit. Right? It will be given. It will be bestowed by the Spirit. Can we just kind of stop for a moment as we all take down notes, as you look at your watches? Uh, can we just stop and kind of sit under that for a second and worship God? The point of this book is to worship God. The end of the book, at the end of the letter, 22, it, it basically uses the same language here and says, worship him. At the end of this, it's worship. We should stop and worship. We should stop and praise him. In the midst of this crazy world that we're living in right now, wearing masks and going places, it's nuts, right? In the midst of this, praise and worship him. Why? Because his grace will always be given to you. He will always be given to the church. It will always be provided through his spirit. We never have to doubt that God's grace will be given to us. It will always be given to us. You know, some of us are stressed out of our minds, mad as hell, what's going on, right? And we, forget, we forgot to worship him. We're struggling to praise God right now. And may this letter be an opportunity for you to kind of soak up the language that's being presented here and worship him and praise his name. I love how it says here that um, it's from God, it's from the Spirit, it's from Jesus Christ, right? The Comforter, right? The, the one who took on flesh is the one who brings us comfort and grace as well. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth. I love that, right? He's not, he's not going to be the ruler. He is the ruler. He is the ruler of the kings of earth. So I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're a Biden fan or a Trump fan. It doesn't matter because Christ is the ruler. He's the ruler. So when you're, hair, when you're pulling your hair out about what leaders are doing or governors are doing, realize that Christ is the ruler of kings. He's not going to be the ruler. He is the ruler of the kings. Remember that in your prayers. Remember that as you are struggling, as you're frustrated, that Christ is the ruler of the kings. He is our great comforter. He mediates, the, he mediates for us right now. If we are God's people, and I think this is an important point as we read through Revelations, is if we're God's people, if we're the ones that God gives us His grace through His Spirit, by Christ Jesus, why does God allow suffering to happen to His church? Like, why does God allow suffering to happen to His church? And this is the thing about Israel, right? They're calling out to God, why are we slaves? Right? Why are we slaves to Egypt? I thought you had promised us through your, our father Abraham that you were going to bless us. Why are we slaves, right? It's the same call. Why are we exiled? Why are we suffering? We are God's people, right? Why, why is this happening to us? The early church was like, well, we trusted in Christ. He rose from the dead. Why are we still suffering? Why are we being persecuted? What's going on? I think at this particular juncture, as we've suffered in some ways, as churches are still trying to suffer to get back together, that the Spirit is in, like, God's in control, that the Spirit is going to accomplish its will, right? It, it's going to do what God desires. It's, God's purposes will be accomplished. He doesn't need us to grow his kingdom. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need me to pastor and disciple you. He doesn't need me. 
He uses us, but he doesn't need us. He doesn't need our money to reach the nations. He doesn't need it. God's going to accomplish his will through his spirit. He's going to do this. And that's an important aspect to the book of Revelation, is trusting that the spirit, that by God's will, will accomplish his plan. God uses the suffering of his people to conform us into Christ, to mold us as clays into his masterpiece. I mean, think of that. Your own suffering right now is a part of God's master plan. That what's going on in the church today is a part of God's master plan. That God's cosmic plan will not be thwarted. It will not come to destruction. He will accomplish his plan. Worship him. Worship him, right? He's using what's going on to mold us into the image of Christ. We need God's grace to endure in the battle zone to continue to live with inner peace in the battle zone. We can't accomplish uh, this endurance in our own strength. We need to rely on God's grace. We need to rely on the Spirit's power. The next point is, is the hope for the church and the risen King and Lord. Hope for the church and the risen King and Lord. Verse 6. He loves us. It's present tense. He loves us. He, doesn't, he didn't love us in the past. It's not like he will love us. He loves us. It's a constant present. He will always love us. He, will, he cleansed us through his blood. He cleansed us. He purified us. He, he washes us in his blood. He makes us new. There's a, a TV show that I've started watching. It's a British show, obviously, uh, called uh, Car SOS. And basically, I always cry at the end of it. And, and basically, I was trying to explain it to my wife. It's like TLC, but for men. It's like TLC for dads. Uh, basically, these two guys... They, uh, they go and rescue these classic cars that these, these men have had in their garages for years and they hadn't had time to fix it. A lot of them have gotten sick and they can't fix it right. They've kind of, and so for years and years and years, these, uh, these kind of classic cars have rusted. So they'll take these cars from them and uh, they, the, the people don't know this, right? That the kind of the family's involved. They'll take the car, they'll work on it, they'll restore it, and then three weeks later, they'll give it back and it's a big surprise. So I can, they see this car that's been rusting in their garage, hoping to maybe restore it at some point, and it's now restored for them, right? There's this kind of, like, amazingness, all this rust and gunk and all this horribleness about this car, and it's then, it's then purified. It's cleansed, and it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Some of these cars are just fantastic, and you're kind of jealous because you wish you owned this car. Um, and this is what's going on. Christ purifies us. He cleanses us through his blood. He made us a kingdom. Again, present tense. This is a completed state. He's made us a kingdom. We are kings. We, are, we have royal status in his kingdom. We are priests to his God and Father. But we are priests. You know, when, when Moses said about Israel that they shall be a kingdom of priests. We are kingdom of priests. It's already happened. This has already been accomplished through Christ. God's eternal will, God's accomplished will in Christ, God's affected will in the Spirit... He has made us part of his kingdom. He has made us priests in his kingdom. Emperors, governors, Satan, and demons, whomever you cannot, you cannot remove that status for those who are loved and cleansed by Jesus Christ. That can't be removed. You are a king, a part of his kingship. You are a priest in his kingdom. Blessed are the readers and hearers and keepers of this word, right? Because if you believe what it's saying in this word, if you trust what's said here... You are a king. You are part of God's kingdom. You are a priest in his kingdom. Keepers of the word. Proclaimers of the word. Uh, this, should, uh, enthusiasm, this should excite us about reading this and believing this and trusting this. Uh, keepers of the past. Celebrating something with our lives. Making it known to the masses. That, that this has been a part of God's plan from the beginning to use agents to make God's uh, 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 will known. He used Adam and Noah and Abraham and Israel, and now he's accomplishing his will through the church, right? That we who are blessed, when we hear this word, when we read this word, when we keep this word, when we make it known to the world, we are blessed. We are made king, part of his kingship. We are part of his priesthood. And this is all, it's all for his glory and dominion forever and ever. This is all about worship. It all comes back down to worship, to praise his name, to praise what God is doing and what he's accomplishing. But this, this, this first chapter takes, uh, takes a, a change in verse 7. The terror of those who have been affected by Christ's testimony. That's the next point. 
the terror of those who have not, who have not been affected by Christ's testimony. He's coming, it says in verse 7. He's coming. The, and John is using Daniel chapter 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. And they will wail on account of him. Every eye will see him. Every eye will see him and, and you will mourn. They will mourn when he comes and they're not ready, when they're not prepared. And they haven't been affected by this word. If they haven't been affected by this testimony, if they not trusted in Christ and not been purified by his blood, right? If they're not loved by Christ, there's terror. And why do we use the word terror? Because John was terrified about, of Jesus when he saw him in the vision. Right? The vision that we see here in the later part of this first chapter terrifies John. We're not going to go into all the details of what's being presented here, starting in verse 12. But it terrifies John. We see the importance of God's presence, right? The, the lampstands represent the presence of God. That God is present in his church. He is present with his church. But also the majesty and glory of Christ. That Jesus... For a lot of the people in the world, they see him as just a teacher, right? A guy who loved people and then was killed, unfortunately. But this presents a total other side of Jesus. A side of Jesus that terrifies John. And as you read this portion of 12 through uh, 16, it's somewhat terrifying. The language that is used to explain the vision of Christ. And it's speaking of his full glory. His full majesty and glory is put on display. The focus is on his power and his kingship and his divinity. He is the ancient of days. The hair is white as snow. is mentioning his, the ancient of days. He is the eternal God. He is the eternal God of all wisdom. The seven stars represent his authority, that he has power over the world. He has power over his church. That a sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That he is full of strength. He is no longer the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. Okay? He is no longer the man of sorrows. He is no longer the one who no one can look upon because they, he, he's, he's ugly and sorrowful. He is, a, he, is a, he is a king. He is a lord who is risen from the dead and who is living and who is powerful. And on full glory, on full display. And they're afraid. John is afraid. And very similar when they saw Jesus on the transfiguration in Luke, they were afraid. They were afraid. John sees his full glory. And John's reaction to seeing the risen Lord is fear. He falls on his faith as though dead. Very similar when Daniel receives the vision of the Lord in Daniel chapter 7, when he sees the Ancient of Days, when he sees the Son of Man coming in clouds, it says he was so terrified that his color changed. Probably he turned white like death. John, seeing this vision, does what? Turns white as death. He's terrified about what he saw. But then John encourages him. He encourages him. He says, fear not. Why should he not fear? Not because Jesus is saying, oh, wait, 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 I'm not really that scary. I'm not really that terrifying. I'm Jesus. I'm your buddy. Don't be afraid of me. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't take away the vision and say, oh, that's not true. That's not what I really am. I don't really speak with the, the, the waters of, uh, many, uh, the roaring of many waters, the raging of many waters. He doesn't take that away. He doesn't minimize that at all, does he? He puts his right hand on him. And how does he comfort John? He comforts him by speaking of his power. I am the first and the last. When God says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, I am the living one, the one who conquered death. Evil and death and Satan will not win. They will not win. Darkness will not win. Evil will not win. Why? Because they're terrified of me. I am the one who rules. I am the one that has ultimate power, not them. Not Satan, not his demons, not his minions, not evil. I have ultimate power, not them. That's how God... Jesus comforts John in his power. He has the keys of death and Hades. Christ is the supreme ruler, not Satan, not whomever is your version of evil, right? Fear is the proper response to Jesus here. Fear. Yet Jesus comforts those who are affected by him. All 
and he comforts with his glory. Not, I'm your buddy. Not, I'm just a good teacher. No, he comforts his church as a warrior who has all power, who holds the scepter. Do whatever you want, and I will always love you, is not the response to Jesus. You hear that all the time. Well, Jesus loves people, right? Like, this, what's the big deal? I can do whatever I want. I can sin any way I want, and Jesus will love me. And if they saw this Jesus, they wouldn't respond that way. They would respond in fear. They would. And that is good and proper as the church, as we go through persecution, as we go into the future, as we are persecuted by whomever, either it be the government or people, we know who we stand with. We know who our head is. And it is the Christ represented and presented here. Jesus comforts those who are affected by him. and He comforts with his glory. Jesus comforts with his glory. As members of his church, members of his body, this is our King and Lord. And if we have been affected by Christ, if you have read and hear and keep his word, you are in his kingdom, you are united in him, and Jesus goes to battle for his church, for his bride. For his bride. And the response is repent and believe. There's a song that I hope we, could, we were going to do this, this week, we were unable to do it, called The Warrior. And uh, it says, But Christ the Son demands our praise, for his kingdom has no end of days. Lord, you rejoice in victory when another loss should bow to his knees. Rising tides of righteousness with the shield of truth upon your breath. O oh, the warrior, your hand shall find out every foe, and as a fiery furnace blows, with raging heat and living co uh, co coals, they will feel your wrath upon their souls. Oh, the warrior will conquer all. The world will fall before his feet. That is good. That is good that God is, Christ is our warrior, that he goes into battle for us and protects and comforts us through his power. I want to end with this, this important point here. I kind of moved over verse 8. But God, when God says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, right? These are his words. These are the words of God. The reliability of all this. The reliability of the source. The Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. That the sovereign reign of God is over history. God will accomplish his will. This is what the book of Revelation is about. That God will accomplish his will. He will accomplish it. It will be accomplished. It may not seem that way in the present when Christians are, are fed to lions, when Christians are persecuted, when churches are, when Christians are, 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 are necks are slit by terrorists, when we are forced, when some churches in America are forced that they cannot meet, right? Because certain governments say you cannot meet because of COVID-19. But think, how is God going to accomplish his will? How is God's will going to be accomplished? How is he going to conquer evil and Satan and darkness? That's why this book is so important. It's so significant that when we read this and we keep it, we go, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it. I'm confused, but I trust you. I trust you. I trust you because I know that Christ reigns. I know that Christ has power over everything. And he will accomplish his will. God is speaking directly to you and I and us. This is not an opinion. This is not advice. This is not simple guidelines. This is not simply a lecture. This is not a CDC report. A word from the president. This is the word of God and a testimony of Christ. And blessed are you if you pay attention and take part. You know, again, as I come to an end to this, maybe some of the things I've already said, you're like, ah. Man, I don't know. Like, I think it's more to it than that. I think it's a timeline. I think there's there's like a, a certain uh, time uh, structure to this, like seven years and whatever years. And I get that. And I, and I don't want to push you away from this. But I, I want us to really focus on the importance of how to read this well. And that as, as Christians, as we sit here today, that we are, are encouraged by the fact that God's going to accomplish his will. That he's going to accomplish his will. And in the midst of whatever suffering we're going through, we need the grace of Jesus. Blessed are those who are affected by the testimony of Christ. Why? 
because they have his glorious grace. And you're helpless and hopeless without it. You're hopeless without his grace. And this book pushes us to trust in his grace. To trust in the grace that is only in Christ. We need revelation because the book reminds us who is in charge and where history is going. As was true for Israel during the time of Daniel and and Ezekiel. It is the same for you and me in the Christ church. Christ has already conquered sin and death in space and time. In space and time. He will then put all evil to flight in space and time. In the meantime, Christ's love for us will hold us fast. In the meantime. We're not at the end yet, are we? We're not at the day of the resurrection, are we? We're not at the day of the consummation of Christ's kingdom. We're not at the day where Christ physically reigns on earth. We're not there yet, are we? In the meantime, as it was true with John in the early church, in the meantime, we have to trust in Christ's love for us and trust in the grace that is offered through God. That he will hold us fast. He will hold us fast. He will help us persevere. He will help us persevere to the end. And that should lead us to worship. We should worship him. We should praise his name. We should say, thanks be to God. Praise your name for the grace you have provided. Praise your name because if it wasn't for you, I would fall astray. And I would compromise in the face of persecution. I would would reject your name in the face of persecution if not for your love and for your grace in me. That is the point of this book. And that is what we're always going to come back to. Every sermon and every section of this passage is that what this book points us to. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and its challenge and its difficulty and its confusion at times. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to... Trust in you and know that you will hold us fast. You will hold us fast. Lord, Lord we, we, we need your grace. We need your grace right now. In the midst of this uh, pandemic, in the midst of this coronavirus, Lord, in the midst of the sufferings to come, the persecution to come, we need your grace. We need your love. We need the understanding, Lord, that you are ruling and you are the king and you are ruling right now. And you have made us a kingdom and, and priests uh, to your father, for your father. You have made us this. We need to trust you. We need to trust, Lord, that you are the warrior, Lord. You're the king who holds the scepter. You're the king that holds the sword. You have all power and all rule. You're the name above all names, Lord. We have to trust you. And trust, Lord, that you will accomplish your will that you will hold your church fast and, and that you will keep us, Lord, in the fold. You will comfort us in the suffering and the persecution now and to come. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. We love you in Jesus' name.